Yeah. Thank you. You know what an impact it is on people in the post-apartheid era to see on stage in the presence of all someone in the skin color of myself and someone in the skin color of Peter publicly kissing each other on the cheek. Do you know how that simple gesture demolishes strongholds in the mind? Who has seen a thing like that? Really? I remember I started coming to South Africa about 10 years after the end of apartheid. And, and uh, I would go into restaurants where previously, of course, um, that were previously reserved for one person, one type of person or another. And I would see that although the people were free to go to these restaurants and to sit amongst each other and the like, that everybody maintained exactly the same postures that they had during the time of apartheid. Because nobody felt the freedom to live beyond the choreography, the social choreography that had defined everybody during apartheid. It was 10 years after. And so the Lord spoke to me to intentionally engage this culture. Not in shock value ways, but in the casual ways that the kingdom, like a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. And one time I was here in Cape Town at the university, uh, speaking over there, and uh, Doug Allen, who is a spiritual son of mine from the States, who is white, uh, had brought in, I needed to go up on the stage and get mic'd and prepared for, uh, for the speaking occasion. He had brought in my briefcase and set it by the seat where I was uh, going to sit until I got up to speak. So as I, got, as I came up on the stage, the audience was already, had already arrived, the place was packed, and uh, Doug put my briefcase down, I came up, I saw him, and of course we walked over and we embraced and kissed each other. And I could hear the collective gasp of the audience. Now that was for us a normal thing. But for the audience, it was breaking new ground. Be quite intentional. Not flaunting the culture of the kingdom, but be quite intentional. About putting on display the things that are right. You are the light of the world. We wait on the world to implement ordinary changes that are common to the kingdom of God. Uh, we wait on the world to take the lead. No. We take the lead. And for me, as a leader and certainly as the father of this house, I am the one 
most keenly aware of the need to model the behavior I speak about. And it's not just the father of this house, but the father of the tribe. So when Lucy and I sit at dinner, uh, at home, just by ourselves, nobody looking, um, we hold hands as we, give, uh, as we give thanks, and I'll reach over and kiss her hand. And um, at first, it just seemed like an unusual thing. But I began to notice that in the cumulative effect of it, it began to suggest to her that in something, an environment as commonplace as us sitting together to have a meal, that I was showing appreciation and kindness for the one I love. Now, that went on for a sufficient length of time that um, it became almost an absent-minded uh, ritual until one day I didn't do it. <laughs> I think the curry just called me and I was in a hurry. And she looked at me and said, well, what's wrong? And I said, wrong, what do you mean? She said, well, you didn't kiss my hand. And I realized something that I had taken for granted that had come to be ordinary and commonplace had come to mean something particularly significant to her. So I, I rebuked myself and I kissed her hand. And I haven't forgotten since. Perhaps I will not be so much known for great and ponderous words and attempting to capture concepts uniquely related to the spirit man. <clears throat> but if I could be known for, for simple things, like kissing my wife's hand, kissing my son, uh, joking with my granddaughter. Some of you remember that story from a few nights ago. If that's how I've known, that would be enough for me. Somebody who, in ordinary ways, chose to live and put on display what he believed. I suspect I'll probably be known for more than that, but I would be happy if I were known just for that. We are a royal people. We're a people who model the character of God's majesty. The most dominant characteristic of God's nature, the one that drives him above all other characteristics, is love. The majesty of God is the reflection in the venue of righteous dealings with love. I want to continue. Last night, let me give a bit of a synopsis. We spent three and a half sessions defining terms, laying down principles, explaining the terms and the use of terms in, in the, the trajectory of the messages 
that were preached. And then half a session and last night, I presented the overarch, the big picture, the arcade that formed the framework in which I intended for you to see, understand, and apply the knowledge of these terms that we had been laboring uh, to, to, to establish. Then this morning, we began to get into applicational models, how these terms apply within the overarch of this great thought process. So I want to continue tonight and to uh, conclude on Sunday the last of the models of application. We began uh, with the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, at verse 10. And it begins with the word, finally. Finally, my brethren. Now this is clearly a summation of the entire book. I explained last night, that the reason I so love the book of Ephesians is because it lays out the architecture of God's relationship to man even if one has no background in the scriptures. Unlike, for example, the book of Hebrews that heavily relies upon and presumes a, a, an exhaustive knowledge of the Old Testament principally the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, those are routinely called the books of Moses as the one to whom the authorship has been attributed, and the law, the law and the prophets. So Hebrews makes the case that Jesus is the son of promise according to all of the scriptures. But Ephesians makes the case for God's original intent that we were meant to be in the image and likeness of God, to have the character of God. And if, when you go back and you listen to the series, you will find that I have defined character, the word C-H-A-R-A-K-T-U-R, which is a tool for engraving like a die for stamping coin. And uh, it, is the, it is the polar opposite of the term adokemos, which is the term uh, reprobate. One has been stamped with the image of the Father and one resisted being stamped by the image of the Father because the metal in the one was malleable enough to receive the imprint of the father, the metal in the other had not been refined to the point of being stamped and therefore was rejected as, a, as suitable for coinage, which of course represents the economy of the kingdom, bearing the imprint of the king. Now, 
I, I unpack that much, much greater detail. So uh, I want you to go back and look at that. But so he comes to the final summation and he says, finally. Now, finally means after having told us about God's original intent, after having found mankind lost and separated from God, after speaking about reconciliation to God in the person of Christ Jesus, and being rearmed with the five graces, including the grace of exact representation, it proceeds to talk about, the book of Ephesians proceeds to talk about how God's intent was now through the church to declare the manifold wisdom of God to the opposition who opposes God. Then proceeds to talk about how God gave grace to the Gentiles to enter into this promise and how structured the body of Christ around various giftings to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that they could proceed in the earth empowered by the economy of heaven to every good and perfect work for the presentation of the Father. It, it moved from there to talking about becoming a mature man and gave the evidence of a mature man as someone who, in, in uh, whatever relationship you are in, whether that of a husband or a wife or a son or an employee, how you would, by submitting to the Lordship of Christ, behave in the primary relational norms of life. And then after that, he comes to the conclusion of facing the enemy and dealing the death blow to the constructs of the enemy. And after all of that, he says, finally, finally. So this represents a very focused application of all that had been talked about throughout the entire book of Ephesians. I think you could see why I love the book of Ephesians. It is the whole story. It is not primarily focused on answering questions. It is a treatise on the intent of God, how that intent has been pursued, perfected, focused, and applied, and then promises ultimate victory in living in this life. And the ultimate victory is the overthrow of the domain of darkness, to destroy the works of the devil. That's a very different picture from pick, picking a few verses and yelling at an invisible Satan, which is how we commonly do it. And we wonder why we have these verses used in that way have no effect. They beat the air, but are pointless in their application. It's sort of like a boxer standing still and pushing his hand forth. There's no power in that. The power is in the weight of the body behind the punch. 
And what I'm telling you is that the power of what is said in the finally is in the weight of everything that has preceded. So that was what this series of messages was designed to bring out. These are messages for the mature. This is a message of the wisdom of the heavens properly conveyed into the Corpus Christi to enable every part of the body of Christ to function with great effectiveness within your domain to the end of destroying the works of the devil. Beginning with the work, destroying the works of the devil within the perimeter of your own personal life. If we don't understand this, then inevitably we'll default to that very childish way of viewing the scriptures, which is to select verses in a, on an ad hoc basis, primarily based upon our, the urgency of our need at that moment in time. Whereas this describes a systemic approach to dismantling the authority of Satan. I suppose if I have a title for this series, it would be Defeating Satan. Defeating him on all fronts. Ridding the creation of the taint of corruption that was introduced by Satan through his rebellious ways. In a, in a sense, it is putting into our hands the knowledge of God that allows us to judge angels. Angels who have been found in rebellion with the certainty that our judgments will be both accurate and effective to evict him from every, from every sphere over which we have dominion. But again, like I said, it's a, it's a whole package. So go back and listen to the whole thing. I, I clearly understand that you're not going to get this message or these messages by listening to them one time. I did not construct the series to be viewed in that fashion. Wherever you are in the trajectory of your growth, you will find value in what has been said. But if you are now at a place of moving on to maturity, these messages are the indispensable underpinnings of revelation that sets your feet on the solid rock. You will begin to see the eviction of Satan from the domains that God has entrusted to you. And when with his eviction, the kingdom's authority, the kingdom's culture, and your personal standing as a royal priest will become altogether noticeable in every domain, in every relationship that you engage. We're moving on to maturity. It was always God's intent. We are the weothesia, of God. We are God's thesis in the mature son. And it's not 
a fiction. It is meant to be an effective uh, administration of the authority and power of God tested against that which has opposed God in all of its cunning and craftiness. And you will see, you will see the darkness recede as you advance. It's what we've been longing for. It's what all creation has been waiting for. The redemption that comes when the mature sons of God arise to their places in the earth. Do you understand how far we have come from, from the days of, if you like, the old-time religion? In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. That's where they were. They wanted to get out of here. Newsflash, we're still here. And the war has increased to the point where we cannot run from the conflict. This is where we turn and face the enemy and become the face of the Lion of Judah. He's not counting on that. He thinks it was a walkover because he has had such unchallenged advances over the domains that men occupied. But now, 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 the people of God will turn to the fight. And we are assured, before we engage, we are assured of the outcome. It will not go well for our enemy. It will not go well for our enemy. We'll bring him under our feet. Now, he gives, them, gives us some specific insights into how we engage him primarily in the, in the domain of our personal life. So he begins, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So everything about the armor of God is a way that we stand in the power and might of the living God. We are not at this point armed to defend. We are armed to be the aggressors. We are the sons of light facing the darkness. There is no possibility that the darkness can remain when the light has come. So as we turn to face the darkness of our enemy, we do so clothed in the strength and might of the one who has already overcome to whom we have been assembled. Therefore, every description of the armor of God is the projection of strength. Otherwise, he wouldn't use the words, 
Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the power of his might. And with that, he says, put on the whole armor of God. It's his armor. It's the armor of God. What does the armor of God look like? Power, might, strength. So it's not, a, it's not a defensive posture at all. You can't imagine it to be that. It is not that. Now, so he begins to use the human body, and parts of the human body, as weapons, turning these parts from vulnerable places to invulnerable places capable of refuting any claim of the enemy against it. Now, having put on the whole armor of God, you'll be able to stand against to stand against, to push back against the schemes of the devil. So it tells you that in this fight, it's more of what you would call a psychological warfare than it is an, a hand-to-hand -hand trading of blows. It is how you dismantle the lies of the enemy upon which his kingdom has been built and how those lies have been used to define you and make you captive and make you helpless. Wiles of the devil. While we have a certain uh, selection of armament, what we're up against finds its strength entirely in a body of lies. You see that? So that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Because we do, we're not wrestling against humans. That is, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. But we're wrestling against areas of rule. That's what principalities are. And against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the high or heavenly places. In short, this kingdom of Satan is both personal and systemic. It, it affects you personally, in terms of personal attacks, but it also comes against you or intends to subjugate you through systemic schemes. We know that the systemic order is called the cosmos. And he is the creator of the cosmos, the word world. So he is the cosmocrator, the lord of a false kingdom. It's called the kingdom of darkness because whoever is trapped in it is trapped in the deception of a lie 
and cannot see the truth. Cannot see the truth regarding their own persons, their personhood. Cannot see the truth regarding faith. Cannot see the truth regarding the power of God. Now, what is the effective blindfold that is put on you when you cannot see as you ought to see? The effective blindfold is fear. When Adam was similarly blindfold, blindfolded, he stopped seeing creation through his spirit and he started to see creation through his soul. That's why the eyes of his soul were opened, resulting in the closing of the eyes of his spirit. So in his biosphere, he took in impulses through the five senses and interpreted them through the paradigm of fear. And he said that. He said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Now before that, when he heard God in the garden, what was his attitude? He rushed to the presence of God. God was not his enemy. God was his father. God didn't threaten his existence. God was his protection. Before that, God was his supply. After that, he clothed himself. A mindset change based in the lie that produced fear. The primary weapon of the wiles of the devil is to induce in your soul, in the emotions of your soul, the emotion of fear. Because when you're afraid, you're not thinking about conquering any territory, you're thinking about surviving in your small space. You're not thinking as a lord, you're not thinking as a royal priest, you're not thinking as a majesty, you're thinking as a slave. You're clearly not thinking as a son, you're seeing yourself as a victim. And you're just trying to defend the beachhead, the, tent, the very tenuous hold you believe you have on life. So your behaviors will mirror your fear. You'll create your own authority to assure you that you can survive. You'll reject divine authority because you have not learned to trust God. You're reluctant to titimi, to lie down in the presence of God, understanding that is inevitable that he will stand up in your circumstances because of his love for you. You trust no one ultimately but yourself. Now, we didn't get that way just automatically. We weren't born that way. We learned it. And the schemes of the devil 
the schemes of the devil have been at work in our existences sometimes for generations before us, creating an environment that makes us susceptible to the spirit of fear. Sometimes the events that induce fear in us were put in us while we were in our mother's wombs. And events that happen after that reinforce the same feelings and emotions that were initially induced in us when those attacks came upon us in the places of our vulnerability. So you see, I'm talking to you about the devil's schemes. This is how he rolls. This is how he operates. This is what he has. And it's so clever because he comes on you so unsuspectingly. The devil will never manifest himself in a manner that, that allows you to or induces you to fight back. He will always come to you in your most vulnerable states. So, and, and I've made the statement that he may even come to you in your mother's womb. Obviously, if his attack against you is while you're in your mother's womb, you will not be able to find the source of your discomfort. Try as you might to forensically determine the relationship between why you behave fearfully and the causation as to how, how did that happen. You can't find the link if the attack came upon you in your mother's womb. I realize here, in just talking about the devil's scheme, I need to go further. So I may not get to the portions of the armor of God, but I'm going to work in this area of showing you the devil's schemes as it regards you, personally. I got a call from a man that I had met about five years ago, maybe, just recently. I had done a two-hour and ten-minute teaching on a, a subject that I call blockage removal. And unbeknownst to me, he had been listening to messages on the website for a long time. You know, when I record these messages and put them on the website, um, I'm usually sitting at a desk or, or someplace in my house or in a studio while I'm recording. And I am not looking into the faces of people who will ultimately listen to these messages. So when I'm done and it's a wrap and we put it up on the internet, for me, I, I don't keep track of the fact that I've done that message. When I meet people who say, I had to call you, or I needed to tell you about this particular message, it's as much of a shock to me 
as anything because I had no idea that this person would be listening to this message and or that it might affect them at all. So when, uh, when this man called me, he said, I wanted to tell you about this message on blockage removal because I had explained how the enemy through the mother's emotion feeds a base emotion into the fetus in the womb. And sometimes it's the most basic emotion that the person has because it came through their mother's, through the umbilical cord into and registered in the emotions of that fetus's soul. Let me stop there and give you the example in the scriptures. Because, and I'll come right back to that point and tell you what he told me. By the way, whenever someone's talking like this, I am usually the most skeptical person. Because if I can get my arms around the information actually, then I'm comfortable with that. But anything that has to do with the potential of speculation or conjecture, I am inherently suspicious. So when someone, that's why God has apostles bring forth this doctrine at this time. Because the rest of the people of God do not actually have the standing to set these matters forth as the truth among the people of God. God bless them, the psychologists try to tell us some of these things and we just say, that's touchy-feely stuff. At least I say that. So I want to show you in the scriptures absolute certainty of what I'm telling you. The human being takes in uh, impulses through the five senses, and they do that all the time. And to the extent that these impulses have been activated in the womb, you will take in impulses through them. They form your emotions. And well after you've been born, 30 years after you've been born, the emotions you experienced in the soul will absolute, in the womb will absolutely predict your behavior in given circumstances. 100%. So the example is that of Jesus in his mother's womb, John in his mother's womb, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John. The story was, the story as recorded in the scriptures, was that John's father, Zechariah, was a priest offering sacrifices in the temple when an angel appeared to him. You remember, I mean, this is holy writ. This is not Sam, a Samsonian version of the scriptures. This is the scriptures as they are. I'm simply repeating the facts of the story to you as they appear in the scriptures. So, an angel appeared 
to Zechariah, the father of John, at the time that he was offering the evening sacrifice and told him that his wife Elizabeth would become pregnant and would bring forth a child and that he, his purpose was, the purpose of this child, a male child, was to announce the arrival of the Messiah for whom the nation of Israel and the whole world had been waiting. In fact, this was the core of the reason for the existence of the Jewish people. This was the promise given to their great ancestor Abraham, that in your seed I will bless all the nations of the earth. I'll make of you a great nation to bring forth the seed by whom I will bless the nations. Well, God obviously intended that a herald would announce the arrival of this king. So somebody was going to be the herald. And he appeared to a righteous man named Zechariah at the time that he was offering the evening sacrifices and said to him, your son, your wife is going to become pregnant. She'll have a son. You'll have a son. And he is the one I have chosen to announce the arrival of the Holy One. Okay? Big deal. It's a big deal. It's probably the second biggest deal in the Scriptures. The original big deal is if the, it's about the Messiah himself. But he was struck dumb. He could not speak. Obviously, he could still write and otherwise communicate. And of course, Elizabeth shows up pregnant. She is six months pregnant. And uh, when another event, a parallel event, occurred involving an angel announcing a child. This time, it was to Mary, the same angel who came to tell Zechariah that, came to tell Mary. And this time, it wasn't to tell the father of the child, it was to tell the mother of the child. So the angel Gabriel came and said, Hail Mary, full of grace, God is with you. You are indeed blessed among women because you will conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called God with us. God with us. He will be the promised one, and he'll be for the rising of Israel. And otherwise greeted and saluted her in the fashion of an exalted one. And then he said, you must go up to the hill country because your cousin Elizabeth has the other piece of the puzzle. <laughs> and you tell her what I have told you. So Mary hastened up to the hill country and came to Elizabeth purposefully. Now here's the thing. Elizabeth had only heard from her husband that what the angel said, but he couldn't elaborate on it because he was not able to speak. 
And so she was struggling with the question, what really happened? You know, what really happened back there when he was offering the sacrifice? Is this for real? I mean, I'm pregnant, but is what he's saying, is any of that really reliable? So what does she need? Confirmation. So who comes to confirm that an angel can come and tell you that you're pregnant with a child? The one to whom the angel came and told her that she was pregnant with a child. What do you suppose happened to Elizabeth when she heard Mary's story? A wave of emotion swept over her. A mixture of exaltation and relief. And it passed down from her soul through the umbilical cord into the fetus of her, the son she was carrying in the womb. And he leapt with joy just like she was leaping with joy. It happens that she was standing in front of the three-month-old one in the womb. The six months difference between Jesus and John. Now, that would have been an isolated incident, but for the fact that 30 years later, the two of them met. Now they're outside of their mother's wombs for quite an extended period of time. And it appears that neither is influenced by the emotions of his mother. And Jesus comes to John as John was baptizing in a place on the Jordan called Enon near Salon because there's a deep pool there. I've had, in, in, in the course of my life and in my journeys, I've actually had the opportunity to baptize people in that same pool. Now, so Jesus comes to John. John's been baptizing people by the hundreds, perhaps by the thousands, without incident. And then he looks up, and here is this one in front of him. And he does the most unusual thing. Jesus says to him, baptize me. And he said, why are you coming to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, allow it to be so now, because it becomes us. This is between you and me. You are here for this reason. This is why you were born. Allows, it permits us, allow it to be so because it becomes you and me to fulfill the requirements of righteousness. And then John baptizes him. How did John know to baptize him? What was the basis of John's reaction? When we read the scriptures without paying attention, we will say that as Jesus was coming to John to be baptized, John spoke up and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Except that, that's 41 days premature. John did say that, but it was 41 days later. 
when Jesus had come back out of the wilderness, right at the place where he departed into the wilderness, the same spot where John was baptizing. It wasn't like there were ten roads into the wilderness. It's a wilderness because it's just a trail going up from that spot. So if you've been in the wilderness for 40 days, you're going to come back out of the wilderness pretty much at the spot where you went in. And as Jesus was walking by, 41 days later, that's when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what he tells us following that is the reason we know that John had no idea who he was when he stood in front of him to be baptized. Because John then said to his disciples, I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize told me that the one on whom I see the Holy Spirit descend and remain, he is it. He is the subject matter. This would be the Lamb of God. When did the Holy Spirit descend and remain on Christ? Before he was baptized or after? Well, you know the narrative. It says, John baptized him. And when he had come up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended on him in the form of a dove, and a voice was heard out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. And the picture is this, that from the beginning, the Word had promised that the Messiah would come. The Word is like water. When the Son of Man, when the Son of Mary was buried in the Word, He arose out of it in the season of God as the Son of God. The Son of Man died that day and was buried. For baptism is a symbol of burial. And the Son of God arose out of the water. That's the picture of how the reality arises out of the Word. So that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the Word of God. It's a picture. It's a picture of the eternal reality. So the, the claim of Jesus to be the Son of God was not a spurious claim that he made himself. It was the fact that he came up, he emerged out of the eternal Word as the Son of God. It would not have been before he was baptized. He would not have been announced as the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world because what was offered was not the Son of Man. What was offered was the Son of God. So, back to the question. Why did John baptize him? What motivated John to baptize him? Because his presence before John triggered exactly the same emotion that he experienced in his mother's womb 30 years earlier. There is your proof. 
So what happens to you in the womb will trigger emotions in your adult life and you won't know why you feel that way except that you feel that way. So this man called me from Dallas-Fort Worth and he said, I listened to that that you said. He said, I've got to tell you what happened to me. He said, when I heard it, immediately I remembered that my grandmother died six months after I was born. And the Lord revealed to me that in the whole time that my mother was pregnant with me, my grandmother was sick unto death. And she knew it, and she carried this feeling of impending doom, of sorrow and sadness for the whole six months. That I, or for, for the whole nine months I was in the womb. And that's when, and she lived in the anticipation of the death of her mother. In addition, he said, in their culture, the firstborn is always given into or given back into the family of the parents. So he has, he has an older sister who was already given back into the family of her parents. So she was doubly sorrowful. The loss of a firstborn and the loss of her mother. And that deep sadness became the foundational emotion of this fetus in the womb and six months later when the grandmother died that sorrow was full-blown and this is what he told me he said for my whole life I never could understand why I couldn't be happy Everything would be going perfectly fine, but I would wait for the next shoe to fall. I lived on the edge of the expectation of sorrow and doom. He said, I had no idea. And I would often say to myself, what's wrong with you? Get with it. Have some fun. Enjoy life. And I could not talk myself into being having an optimistic outlook on life. And he said, then I heard your message. And he said, I broke down and I just wept and wept because I finally had the piece of the puzzle. He said, after a while, when I stopped weeping, I realized I was as light as a feather. That that spirit that had taken possession of the emotion of my soul, robbing me of joy, had left me. Because I knew what it was, and I would not have it anymore. And he said, I was so excited, I sent the recording, I sent a link to the recording to my sister, who lived in another state. 
And she said, she listened to it, called me, and we were both weeping on the phone. Now, all this happening, happening without me having a clue. I was entirely out of the narrative and would not have known it but for the fact that he told me. And he said, she is so free now because she realized that she was dealing with a spirit of abandonment because she had been given up and was being raised by a grandmother apart from her mother. She said she was so excited, she said to me, do you know this man? And he said, yeah, he's my friend. He said, can you arrange for me to meet him? And he said, I'll try. But the point is, whether or not we ever meet is not the point. The point is, it's almost like the person who comes back and says, once I was blind, but now I see, and you can't get rid of him <laughs> because, because he's, he's just dogging you. The schemes of the devil are like this. They come into you when you're vulnerable. Whether it's permission granted by those who have authority over you, when you're a child, your parents have authority over you. God established it that way that you, they should be watched over. And if they knowingly or unknowingly permit the enemy to gain entrance to your emotions, this is what happens. That emotion, that sense from them comes and takes possession of a particular set of emotions in you. And it remains there, and every time something else happens to you, whether it's a taste, a smell, a sound, a sight, a touch, that reminds you of that emotion, you're right back in the cage where you started. Because your soul is interpreting your emotions according to what is seminal, basic in you. And you will act every time, predictably, in a manner consistent with the emotions that have been triggered in you. So if the emotion of fear is triggered in you, or if the emotion is one of the sense of abandonment, the sense of abuse, the sense of being unworthy, the sense of being unwanted, to name a few of the more basic ones, every time something happens in your adult environment, you will unconsciously default to that posture and fear your circumstances that do not justify the, your reaction. And that just traps you further because you know the reaction is wrong or at least you know it's not justified by the circumstance. But you don't know how to break the cycle. Now, if you happen to be married to that emotional uh, predisposition, they're going to see you though you have not had nothing to do with it, they're going to see you as primary causation to their distress. 
and you not having a clue about any of these things, you're going to respond to it out of your framework. And whatever is your stuff is going to interpret whatever is their stuff. And there's no possibility that you can live peacefully with that level of disconnect. Try as you might. What we've been trying to do is get people to modify their behavior on the basis of Scripture. Because the Scripture says we should live peacefully with all men, then you ought to live peacefully with me. My wife's father abandoned the family for another woman and her children when she was about 11 years old. No, they were from upper middle class family. And uh, the abandonment was purely on the basis of the father's lust. But as time went on, her brother said to her, you know, our father was a good man. Why are you so angry at him? And she determined, you know, I'm not going to be angry at my father anymore. He was a good man. So she adopted the narrative of her brother in an attempt to live peacefully with the father's memory. So her father is dead now and they were reconciled before he died. But these events happened recently, long after, years after her father died. But she found herself at times being disturbed when she and I would have a conversation that didn't quite go the way she wanted. Now, I have learned that there are ways to address things with my wife that are the better part of wisdom. But even that skill did not avail because she would fall into, not often, but at times specifically, she'd fall into this mental funk. And it, she always turned it internally. And she would say to me, I don't know what's wrong with me. Just something came over me. Something you said. So we'd talk about the facts on the surface. And we could never get a hold of what it was, and she would say, oh, I'll be fine. And indeed, after a few days, or sometimes after the end of a day, she'd be fine. So we let it go, and we let it go, and we let it go. Then she was hearing me talk about these things, and she said, you know, I think something is wrong. I think there's a demonic torment of me in a particular area, and I don't know what it is, don't even know where to look. So I said to her, Fast and pray and tell me what comes to your mind. She fasted and prayed and she said, the only thing I can think of is my relationship with my dad, but I can't find what the problem is because he was a good man. I said, that's the problem. I said, now let me play it to you from a different angle so you can see it. Let's say that when our daughter Tamarind was 13 years old, I came home from business trip and told you that I'd met a woman with five children 
that I had fallen in love with and was going to marry and I was going to leave you and your children. Would you consider me a good man? And she said, well, no. You wouldn't be a good man. I said, you're right. I wouldn't be a good man. I'd be a selfish man. I'd be a man who would inflict pain on you and on my children for nothing more than my lust. That does not qualify me by any measure as a good man. I am not. I would not be a good man under those terms. I said, so here's the problem. Because he left you and in your mind was a good man, something had to be wrong with you. So you bore the weight of his infidelity as if it was personally your fault. I said, every time you have the slightest sense that you and I are not getting along on some matter, we don't see eye to eye, you know in your heart I would never leave you nor forsake you. That's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the emotion that anticipates that I am going to leave you. That's demonic. And the root of it is an implant by your father into your soul at the age of 13. And that's why you can't get over it. You've turned it inwardly looking for an answer in what you could do to improve, what you could do to be loved by me in some additional way, what you could do to be worthy. And I said, after 43 years, you ought to know that I'm not going anywhere. In fact, I don't even have options anymore. <laughs> Spend my whole life with you. You've trained me to your specifications. <laughs> who, who else would have me? <laughs> so we laughed, but we came back to the fact that an, an evil spirit called the anticipation of rejection had lived and inhabited that emotion since she was 13. So you know what you do with evil spirits? Because you are armed with the mighty power of God. You're seated on the throne of divine authority with your enemy, with his foot, with his head under your foot. You cast it out. Summarily. It has no ability to resist you. So we did that. I haven't, heard, I haven't heard a return visit of any of that stuff. It brought me a lot of peace to do that. Not to mention it brought her a lot of peace in the process. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The issue was not even her father. The issue was the spirit that was permitted to come in through the negligence and dereliction of duty of her father. But it was a spirit that we were dealing with. Father's dead and gone, cannot affect her anymore in this world. But the residue of his misconduct, I still had to deal with. 
we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principality, principalities, powers, rulers, pardon me, of the darkness of this world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The, these are the, the, the devices by which the enemy projects power which are indeed no more than the power of his schemes. Every weapon of the enemy, every bit of ground he has gained in your emotional life, the emotional life of your soul, every inch of territory he has gained based upon the advance over a lie. And the effect, the thing that causes you to back up and give him territory is first your belief in the lie and secondly the fear that it produces. Such are the devil's schemes. Therefore we take up the full armor of God which I have described as the configuration of the power of God that clothes you. And it is most effective in taking back everything that your enemy stole from you. You cannot expect God to honor the claim of the devil against some territory in your emotional life when all of it was achieved through lying deception. Why? Because God is just. He will never countenance or allow to stand the gain that was achieved through lies and deception. It cannot stand. It's a farce that God, when, when the appeal is made to God, to deliver you. In fact, when you're clothed in the righteousness of God, you can deal with the devil as if you represent the person of God himself and his lie cannot stand. So he'll leave you. If you clothe yourself in Christ, which is to submit to Christ, resist the devil, confront him with the lie that you now have been able to discern so submit to God, clothe in the, in the righteousness of God, resist the devil from the place of your legitimate righteousness. What will he do? He will not stick around and argue with you because he understands that he permits God to destroy even more of his works than if he just got out of there and quit the fight while he was still ahead. Because when God, get, when God starts dealing with him, he doesn't just take back that lie. He takes back a whole series of other interrelated things because the Son of God was revealed for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil beginning not only in your own life, but destroying the system's control upon you, the systems of the cosmos, destroying the whole thing. 
the end of the matter is that we will ravage the territory of the enemy. You notice, in times past, when we would talk about these things, there'd almost be a sense of fear that we were talking about the devil. What if he shows up? What if all of a sudden he just comes into the, into the house? This is the last place he wants to, to make an entrance. It's, he's here and his scouts are here because they want to know what we know. They want to know what we know. And they're hearing a sound that's scaring the hell out of them. <laughs> if you see what I mean. I use that not as a curse word, but as their domain, their belief in their domain is being profoundly shaken because the sons of God are getting it right. We don't send children to this war. It's not children who are clothed in the armor of God. So the whole cutout, cardboard cutout thing was pretty pointless theater. We send the huios of God, the mature sons who have been configured and clothed in the righteousness of God, we send them into that battle. And they will demolish the strongholds of the enemy wherever they are to be found in your domain. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you.